this is a special edition, a Christmas edition of the podcast. So what that means is instead of it being every three weeks, we're just popping this one in the middle to give you a little bit of extra bonus content as your Christmas gift. Um, so on today's episode, we are having the lovely Emma Lane join us from Portsmouth Hospital. She is a senior cardiac physiologist and in the episode she'll go into and explain what that means for her. This In this podcast, what we always try and do, and it doesn't change because this is a Christmas episode, is we want to find a little bit more about her journey into research. So how did she get into it and where is she along that journey? So have a listen and remember to like, comment and subscribe. If you do listen to this through podcast platform, please leave a review because that will really help um, push it out to more people who may not follow us on social media. So if you could do that, that would be really great. Um, without any further ado, I'm going to welcome the lovely Emma to join me and we're going to go ahead with this special Christmas live edition of the Researcher Revealed podcast. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Researcher Revealed. This is a special Christmas edition um, that's getting released in addition to the normally one every three weeks and um, I hope you all enjoy. Don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe, hit that notification bell on either YouTube or your podcast platform of choice. Today, in order to figure out more of the person behind the research, we have joining us the lovely Emma Lane. Emma, tell us who you are. <laughs> um, as you said, I'm Emma Lane. So I'm actually a cardiac scientist, uh, which comes under the branch of healthcare science, which is a okay. lot of people in the hospital. Um, we've got the, we've got the nurses, midwives, you've got the AHPs, and then there's the healthcare scientists, so like your biochemistries. And I come under the physiology section, which is one of yep. the few people that gets to touch the patients while you're a healthcare uh, scientist. Okay. So cardiology is my background, and my speciality in there is echocardiography, so ultrasound of the heart, and a few bits and pieces within them. I work part-time doing that. When I'm not part-time doing that, I'm going to be part-time doing my PhD, hence I am here. Oh, lovely. Okay. So... You probably are all aware of this, but before we get into it, we'd like to do on Researcher Revealed what I call the Rapid 11. It's just a way to get to know you a little bit better, know how you work. Nothing too scary, just a bit of fun. So, are you ready? As I'll ever be. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Right, so are you Windows or Mac? Oh, Windows. Okay. Tea or coffee? Oh, tea. Nice. Can't do coffee at all. No. When you're writing, music or sounds or silence? Not silence. I've either got particular music or that kind of like that background coffee shop, something going on, but I don't need to be involved okay. with sound. But there is specific music that I write better with. Okay, you have my interest peaks now. Mm. What kind of music? There is. I swear it's witchcraft. There's a particular type of music by, and forgive me if my pronunciation is off, Ludovico Einaudi and Daniel Hope. The piece of music uh, it's called in a time lapse mm -hmm. um, there's something there's something magical about it okay. it's like voodoo it's just very 
quite fast rolling music which kind of like goes along with your fingers and then it stops and goes to a quiet bitch which is when I then go back and check what I've just written and then it starts up again and I can go for it don't know it's magic it's voodoo wow. I'll, I'll play it for you later well, no 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 what we'll need you to do and this might happen for a couple of the questions anything like that that you introduce both me and the audience to is in a follow-up email I'll ask you to send me a link to like a Spotify or whatever so that people in the description of the podcast they can then seek it out themselves because if it's magic who doesn't want it's magic you do baby yeah. yeah no it sounds like i need that magic uh, in my life okay so where were we writing where do you work home or office um i don't have an office i'm not that special i don't get one at all anywhere in any job okay <laughs> i mean i'm probably being disingenuous there to the university but Portsmouth Uni have got a space that you can go and hot desk, but okay. getting down there is yeah. difficult when you work yeah. part-time. So I have an office at home. Mm. If I'm at work, I'm 100% clinical, so there's... Okay, there's not really. Yeah. But I have okay. been known to, if my son is at tennis, I've been known to sit in the car for an hour and with my laptop <laughs> on my steering wheel, getting work done. But you're done. one of those people I've seen on like uh, social media who, like, especially during COVID... You saw all kinds of people who were working from home but also had to be teacher because their yeah, children yeah. couldn't go to school who turned their cars into an office. Yeah, I mean, by default, I've got an hour. <laughs> I've nothing else I can do. I might as well go through some Love literature that. while I'm here. Love yeah. it. Cool. Right. When, what time of day are you most productive? Really annoyingly in the afternoon. Oh. I would love to be productive first thing in the morning. It would make my life so much easier. I can work 9 till 12. Mm. and churn stuff out mm -hmm. I go dead after lunch and then I don't pick up again till about half three four and that's my best spot from like half four till like however o'clock at night yeah which is really annoying because that ruins my dinner time and I really like to get to bed <laughs> early but I, it took me years to figure out that was my time but that was my time cool I like it afternoons favorite referencing or referencing management Software favorite tool stretching. <laughs> You're not the only one who said that. <laughs> uh, I am Mendeley though. Mendeley, I've tried others, okay. but I'll stick with Mendeley. I quite, I quite like that it gives you little nudges as to you might also like this. So uh, I like that feature, okay. Mendeley. Nice. Okay. Um, favorite data visualization tool. Like how you make your figures, your uh, uh, graphs, pretty your pictures pretty in. pictures, yeah. So, depending on what I'm doing, okay. so I don't think you can go wrong with an Excel pie chart, oh, yeah. chart graph, yeah. because yeah. I strongly feel whatever conveys it in the easiest way and the simplest way, because if you can't that. convey it to an 11-year-old, you don't know it yourself. Oh, I love that. So definitely I will go the simplest method possible, and that is often something like that. Okay. I love that. If you can't explain it to a 11-year-old, yeah, yeah. you don't know. If you have to use big words to explain it that nobody understands, what's the point of your research? You've got I to convey love it. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. It's also because my probably standard is 11-year-old. So <laughs> we'll go ahead and Favourite desk snack? I'm an equal opportunity snacker. <laughs> so I can eat a packet of biscuits and devour them in one go. A body like this happened with a lot of neglect. Um, anything, I will say no to very little. 
Okay, fair enough. I'm similar. Yeah. If, it's, if it's edible, it's in. Biscuits are usually a sweet thing because you just okay. need to keep yourself pet. So more of a sweet than more a savoury. I mean, that's just a rule in life. But yeah, more of a sweet than savoury. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, when you're planning or organising, are you a paper and pen or digital? Oh, I'm a little bit of a hybrid. Ooh, tell yeah. me more. Don't get me wrong, I like a paper and pen. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of, there comes to a point where you kind of need to transition a little bit digitally because you need maybe some extra fancy features that your pen and paper haven't got. That said, I'm a complete nightmare when it comes to stationery. I'll have tons of it um, in various different colours, shapes, shades, and I can't be the only person. <laughs> you aren't. Um, and I'm a sucker for making a list in pretty colours. Oh. And putting things on the list that I've already done just so I can cross them out. <laughs> remind, remind me later, offline, to show you my multicolored to-do list you will fall in love with i love that. a color coordination oh and me. each color means something as well yeah. so yeah remind me i'll show you later uh two more questions what book are you currently reading so i have seen your other podcasts and everybody reads really intelligent books <laughs> like and i'm really going to disappoint you but no you're not going <laughs> to disappoint me so my reading choices are reasonable trash and I'm not ashamed of it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, I'm not going to read the diaries and memoirs of fantastic people. I am going to read a, like, a, you know, 300 pages enemies to lovers situation and has it got a vampire or a wizard in it, I'm totally sold. I, I am all about the trash. Okay. I do like some modern literary classics. Mm. So, you know, uh, Song of Achilles I've just done. Okay. Cruel Dad Singh. But I also love me some YA fiction, I'm not going to lie. If oh, I'm reading, yeah. I want to escape. Yes. I just yeah. want a complete escapism. Perfect. I love and, it. And uh, Sarah Mass, Court of, you know, Roses, Court of Roses and Thorns. Or oh, I love Sarah J. Mass. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, completely yeah. escape. Yeah. So, confession time. Currently, what are you reading? Don't know the name of it at all. Okay, so you have to tell me later because, again, it's something that I like to put in the notes. Okay, okay. So, uh, with the sounds, the title and author of the book that you're reading so that I can add it to the virtual yeah, bookshelf. I don't show. know what it is. Cause I go through a lot of books very quickly. Me too. So, like, uh, I'm a book a day girl. A day? Oh, man, you put me to shame. I, mean, I thought I was fast with, like, two to three a month. Oh, God, no, like a couple of weeks is where I go. I probably should be working on my thesis at that time. <laughs> But um, I will yeah. read till the cows come home. But the problem is, because it's Kindle, you don't see the front page of it. Ah. So just, all I know is that it's, it's about... It's a book. Yeah, yeah. I, I okay. don't know what the name is. Fair enough. So you're a digital book reader, not a paper book Bit of both. Reader. Bit of both. Bit of both. <laughs> Bit of both. Okay. Right. Last question of the Rapid 11. Who is a researcher that you admire? <gasps> oh, my God. Anybody who is a researcher, full stop. Like the fact that they've even done that path mm. just astounds me and I'm forever in awe, and there'll always be bits that you can take away from all the different people. Within probably the area that I work in, I have a little bit of hero worship and stars in my eyes. Okay. Especially if I'm on Twitter and, and they've interacted or liked something, I get all girly about okay. it. Okay, who, who, um, dish, dish. Um, Ashbjorn Stoylen, and again, okay. forgive me if I've um, said it wrong, he's like the granddaddy of strain software and strain imaging and analysis, which is what my PhD is based on. So I reference him a million times in okay. thesis. But that sounds fascinating. I, I, I love hearing who uh, 
researchers admire because it gives me more people to look at and to mm. be like, what can I learn from? So, and I'm sure other people and feel they just the know same so way. Much. And I think too, for me, like uh, research can be or can feel, depending on who you are, quite isolating. So having those researcher heroes, I think is such an important thing because you're like, there are other people out there in the world who have done this, yeah. who have lived to tell the tale, who are still doing this. Um, and I think that's incredibly important, especially like I know where you work because I'm there too. Um, when you're at a place that's more fledgling mm. status versus like um, the really big established research groups, ours is fledgling. We're just mm. developing. So I think that can really make certain things a bit more Yeah, tricky. it doesn't matter where you are in your journey. I'm like sat here as a 43-year-old woman going, I want to be like them when I grow up. <laughs> and then at some point, I might actually be a grown-up. It's all very relative. You know what? Like, it's really scary. So this has happened to me now like a couple of times since I finished my PhD, is people have said to me, oh, I admire you. And I'm going, what have you you take it, take it. See, why would yeah. you do that? Trust me, you don't want to admire me. They ask me for advice and I go, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> exactly. Right, thank you very much for that. It was very interesting. I still, I love what you said um, at the beginning. Like, that's so cool. It's sticking with me in my little So, what I'd like to hear about now, so you've started to hint at it in some of your answers mm. to the Rapid 11. So you've told us who you are. You've told us uh, physiology. Um, explain it to me an 11 year old as an 11 year old what what does that what does your work entail and why did you want to go from just doing that clinically to start to go into the research world so with what I do and it's I get quite asked quite often, what is it you do again? Because it's not a well-known No, exactly. Job. Yes. Like everybody will have heard of physiotherapists or dietitians or yes. occupational therapists, but actually it's a very niche market. Yes. And, and certainly when it comes to things like training and recruiting, we're like unicorns, we're very hard to find. So there's not very many of us. That very, just makes you more special. It's very special. Um, it's a very, very small world. We all know each other probably as well. Um, so there's lots of different branches mm. within cardiac science. And as a graduate, you do a bit of everything. And then like most jobs... The more that you specialise, the higher up you go, and yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. related to each other. Your speciality and your band goes up, kind of pyramid kind of scheme, yeah. um, with management being at the very top. And I started off doing a bit of everything. So that was um, programming pacemakers mm -hmm. and looking after those patients, pacemaker implants, helping mm -hmm. the team there. People that are having a heart attack, you know, in the middle of ASDA, have your heart attack, you come into hospital, and you come straight in, and we poke lots of things into your heart to make you better, basically. Um, and part of the team that deals with that. And the imaging side of it, which is why I work, which is oh, okay. ECHO, the yes. cardiac ultrasound. Okay. Same as the baby scans, just higher up on the chest. Okay. Um, so you look for babies in people's chest? Yeah, I'll give that time to it. Have I got a baby in there? No, you haven't. Oh, man, I thought that was going to be an original yeah, joke. Exactly. <laughs> this close to Christmas, I'm like, oh, it's a Christmas miracle, isn't it? I um, so I chose to specialise in imaging. I have done it all and then I've gone upwards. And yes. where I sit now is this, they term it a highly specialised band seven, whatever you want to call it. But I just sit there with my speciality in okay. echo and all the things that surround that. So yeah. diagnosing people's heart conditions, yeah. mechanical issues, and then sort of like surveillance, keeping an eye on those problems they've got okay. heart to see if they get okay. any worse or okay. stay stable. Yeah. Um, and I got into the job by accident, <laughs> you know? Wait a second. By accident, how? I think okay, because so, nobody so knows the job exists. 
Okay, I see what you're saying. I was like, surely you had to apply. Surely, surely that process of applying for your job wasn't an accident. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying now. Yeah. I think most most of us that work in that job have usually got another degree that we've done. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you suddenly, oh, yeah. oh, that job exists. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, and then you end up okay. doing another degree to do that okay. job. Okay, I'm with you. A bit of a convoluted way around. So I mean, no, my no, background was stroke service. I was a healthcare support worker for years oh, in elderly wow. medicine at stroke rehab, uh, which I really enjoyed. But then I kind of get itchy every couple of years, and I want to do something. You're smiling at me because I bet you're the same, aren't you? I wouldn't want to say. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what should I do? I did a foundation degree in medical technology, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically a paramedic without an ambulance that's on the wards. Um, and then there wasn't a job at the end of it. It, was, it, it exists mm. now, but it was just too junior back in yeah. 2002. It didn't exist. Okay. And then I was like, oh, but I really, really like, found a niche there that yeah. I want. And that's how I got into cardiac physiology okay. and then worked my way up. So then the transition from being clinically taking pictures of people's mm. hearts into research, was that also accidental? No, I think that's oh. just, well... I didn't sort of like have a sudden I'm going to do a PhD kind of moment. It wasn't like that, and it's it's not about the you know delusions of grandeur or anything like that because there is no grandeur in it as you're well aware. It's a slog. But actually, it's and, and I think it's a really interesting that we are ward people, clinical people. Mm. Stop, clinical people are the best place to do the research mm. because we see the people and we have the questions. Why does that always look like that in those people? Oh, yeah, no, you can expect it to be look like that because they've had that. Yeah, but why? You end up with that kind of like that bedside question yeah. about, you always see that patients with sepsis have a heart like that. Yeah, but why? Because we've got that at the same time. and All of mm. a sudden, this question grows. Yeah. And I dipped my toe into the water and did just, just a little kind of like audit service evaluation okay. questionnaire thing. Um, just as a poster for like, you know, a national conference. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I was like, oh, that was actually really interesting. And down the rabbit hole I went, and now I sit here in my last year of PhD. Very cool. Okay, so I involved in a clinical audit, led you into the world of research. You now, as you said, uh, last year of your PhD. So mm. tell us about what, what are you doing in your PhD? So the topic itself is trying to diagnose and predict heart failure in okay. intensive care patients who mm-hmm. have sepsis or septic shock. Okay. It's kind of like a two-branched affair. So before we go further, sepsis, what is this? So you have an inflammation, inflammation somewhere and an infection yep. somewhere, and your body should have a natural response to that okay. infection. And we've all had, you know, an, an infected something somewhere, whether it's <laughs> oh, yeah. throat tonsillitis or a cut has gone funny, yep. whatever. And we, always, we have that little response to it. And sepsis is an exaggerated response to that. And your, okay. your body system... Um, goes very can go very wrong all the way from you know you have a you know dropped blood pressure and you have reduced flow lots of people end up in intensive care okay where they can't keep their blood pressure up because if you can't keep your blood pressure up you don't get any oxygenation to your you know your major organs and people end up going into multi-organ failure and unfortunately they pass away okay so if we can find out heart things that are driving that okay so you know if your heart doesn't pump very well then it's not going to deliver blood and oxygen to all the things that we need to keep mm. pumping and keep alive, yeah. and you go south very quickly. Yeah. So actually, if we could identify those patients sooner, could we help them sooner? Could we get more information? 
because it identified people that we didn't think were sick, but actually they really are, because we can have a little focus on those people. But also once we've said, okay, your heart's not pumping very well, so what we need to do to keep your rest of your organs perused is to give it loads of medication and fluid mm -hmm. to make it work harder to keep you alive. Of course, we've got to. We've got to keep the patient alive so that they can recover yep. from their sepsis and be okay. So we basically take a heart that's not working very well and make it work harder. Ah, the patient okay. recovers from their sepsis yep. event and we all go, thank goodness, and, and off you go. But actually, maybe we should look at their heart after they've recovered because we've known that organ wasn't too good at the start. So maybe we should keep an eye on it. So it's both detecting it and then trying to predict what might happen in those people. Okay, so question. Was there something or, or that, because you said earlier that, um, and I loved how you said it, that it's about that why. So was yeah. there something that happened in your clinical work that made you think of this question? Because to me, I'm like, wow, that's so novel because so much of, um, so much of our medicine, our healthcare, no matter where you are in the world, is very reactive. Mm. Um, to hear that you're doing a PhD that's actually trying to predict future things, I'm like, oh, how did you come up with that idea? Uh, well, two things. The, the particular type of echo measurements that I use have already uh, they've been around and they are used for cardio-oncology hmm. to try and predict heart events or mm -hmm. predict and try and find patients that might need more support with their heart. Oh, okay. So it's like, well, if it happens for those people, shouldn't we also apply it to these people too? Uh, so there was that. Um, and the other thing is just that, again, just being, this is where being clinical-based helps you with your mm -hmm. question. So like, well, oh, yeah, the heart looks good. Well, yeah, but the heart only looks good because you're on all these medications. If we were to strip those away, okay. it actually is your heart okay or not? We seem to be focused so much on this magical number, which has been augmented and changed by all the medication you're on. Actually, mm. what are we missing here? So I think between those two things, that's where it came from. I love that. Mm. That's so intriguing. So... Um, this magical number, it looks good. Because, I mean, I've, in my day, worked in ITU. And again, yeah, I, I completely hear what you're saying in that as an ITU nurse, you're like, oh, to the computer, to the screen that has all of these numbers that because your patient is asleep, you can't talk to them. Mm. You don't get that feedback. So those numbers become your feedback. And so you're so focused on those numbers that it's it's something that, I had pop into my head, but did nothing about because I'm not as cool as you. Um, where I was like, but but what does what does it mean? Yeah, how a lot does of that context. number? Yeah, and okay. we're quite good in echocardiography. We do a lot of context, so we'll say, well, the heart looks like this, but in the context of X, Y, and Z, I don't think it really is that. Oh, okay. so we do that a lot naturally in our job. Okay. So I think that's probably again where just the question comes out. So for you, this magical number you keep talking about, mm. yeah, <laughs> can we know, or do we have to like have like a secret shake, handshake? Yeah, hundred percent. You're not in the club. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> so it's the ejection fraction. Okay, is, is is a number, and most clinicians have heard of it at some point. And it's just basically a volume of amount that's in the heart when it's at its fullest and when it's at its shortest, when it's squeezing, and um, like any percentage number you take divide by one by the other and okay. times it by the colour if you can and turn around three times and you end up with a little magical number. Sure, she times it by the colour <laughs> turn around three times. Because Basically our medicine is done. <laughs> I've walked by like your room and I've never seen anybody get 
turning around and three times. There was a magical handshake, like I say. <laughs> oh, man. Fair but enough. We just, we just focus so much on this number of what this percentage is, mm. but forgetting that, like, even in our day-to-day -day echo world, oh, the, the EF, the ejection fraction is 55%. That's, that, that's good. I was like, yes, but they're laid down. This is not how they spend their day, or they're on this tablet. You know, it's like in nursing, it's yeah. probably when people say, oh, yeah, no, my blood pressure's fine. Well, yes, that's because you're on a tablet, though. So it's a kind of the equivalent of that, but for cardiac uh, oh, I love echocardiography. That. Okay, that, that helps me because I love, like, that is my favorite thing when you talk to somebody, inpatient or outpatient, they're like, no, 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 I don't have any issues with my blood pressure. And I'm looking at their medication and yeah. they're on three antihypertensives. Yeah. And I'm going, mm-hmm. But if you stop taking those, <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, that really helps. Okay, so you saw this thing. You were like, hmm, I wonder why. So very quickly, because I want to focus on where you are now more than how you got there. How then did you convert from clinician only to clinician plus doing a PhD? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, I just made it happen. Okay. So there, there would have been lots of reasons not to. Okay. Um, in an ideal world, I would work full time and I would take two of those days, um, transmit them into research and not lose out because I would have a fellowship or whatever. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a pathway I could take okay. on account of I was already part time. Okay. Um, because of uh, clinical demand being what they are and whatever other reasons, then I was not able to lose that clinical time. I had okay. to keep my clinical contact. So I thought, I have stubbornness issues. I'm going to do it anyway. So I'm not asking for permission here. So I decided, well, I still am going to do it. This yeah. is definitely worth investigating yeah. here, guys. So, right, how else can I make it happen? So I made it happen by saying, well, look, I work in the mornings. I'll do my PhD in the afternoons. Okay. And I do it very much on my own time. Yeah. Um, Funding-wise, there's been some years that I've paid funding. There's been some years where I've done you know, magically haven't found a way from other departments to pay for my mm. funding. So like the renal department were fantastic. Yep. So I did some data collection for some of their study yep. and as a result they paid for a year or two of my PhD. Okay. So a little bit of back scratching went on. Okay. By hook or by crook we've got there. So that real, you've got that real, like what I really admire, like no matter who you are, what stage of research you're in, I think the thing that I admire most in fellow researchers is exactly what you've just described, this um, burning passion about their why mm. that you just refuse to let go. And I, um, in a previous episode with, um, I think it was Lindsay Cherry um, from the University of Southampton, she said it, that research isn't for people who are really clever, but it's for people who have a gripe. Yeah, 100%. 100%. My, my biggest step, in terms of academic terms, I found a bigger step up going from undergraduate to master's. Yeah. The master's to PhD. Oh, interesting. I found that the transition master's to PhD was more about my time management and my drive and my focus. Because ah, nobody's going to do this for you. Yeah. Nobody's giving you a deadline. Yeah. You've got to make this. You, nobody's giving you, you need to go to these sessions every Tuesday. Nobody's doing no, that. You've got to do it yourself. So that was the biggest change. I mean, yeah. yes, of course, it's an academic course and there's academic writing, etc. But actually, the project and people management was, mm -hmm. and I know we've talked about this before, but that, that was the biggest thing. And you've got to have that 
degree of tenacity <laughs> to I, I really feel this is worthwhile and, and nobody's gonna help me but I'm gonna do it anyway I love that you used the term tenacity over resilience because oh. I find yeah I, I find in the research world um, people are like, oh, you have to be resilient. Blah, blah, oh, I blah. hate that term. And I hate, why do you hate the term? Because I also hate the term. Why do you but hate it? The thing it? with the term resilience, I suppose it is very much a case of how it is used. I appreciate that. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's meant with the best intent possible. Yeah. And sometimes the word resilience comes from a good place, yeah. not a bad place. My problem with it is, is sometimes that gets abused. And actually, mm. I shouldn't have to be resilient. I shouldn't be in a position where I've had to be resilient. I don't want resilience. I want support. Yeah. I want to be treated softly and gently and developed and grown and nurtured. I don't want to have to be a case of something's happened and you've got to be resilient and get through it because you're the only one that can. Yeah. It's just got a, a reasonably negative connotation to it. I'm the exact same and I have the exact same feelings about it. And that's one of how you've described it as my biggest bugbear with that work as well is I think resilience gives bodies big bodies, not necessarily your manager or my manager or Fred's manager, but it gives big bodies permission to not provide that support. The word resilience puts very yes. much the onus on you. Exactly. When actually, maybe there shouldn't be any onus mm. on you. It's saying, if, you're, if I'm telling you to be resilient, I'm making it your problem exactly. that you're not resilient. Actually, is the situation one you shouldn't have to be resilient in? Exactly. I hate it. I hate it as well. We have, we have common things that we hate. Okay, so that that set the stage a lot more for us. So your study is specifically around, your PhD related study is about this very specialized imaging technique that you use ultrasound for, echocardiography of the heart, in order to predict or to monitor hmm. the potential damage that might happen to somebody's heart um, if they were septic. Mm -hmm. So I think you said earlier um, and if not, um, before we press play on this podcast, um, that you are in your last year. So, hold on. It's Christmas. This is the Christmas special of the Researcher Reveal podcast. So, what did you put on your wish list for Santa Claus this year? For PhD. Well, yeah, well, I mean, if you want to share your personal one as well, that's fine. But let's keep it. <laughs> Henry Cavill didn't hear that, so I was just quite upset. But <laughs> let's keep it related to to your work as a researcher. Um, yeah. If I could wake up on Christmas morning and my statistics have all been done, that would just be heaven. Okay. Uh, I'm okay with the writing about it. Yeah. Just um, I'm. I'm Statistics is something that I've spent a long time trying to get okay with, and I've accepted the fact that I will never be a statistician, but that's okay, I don't have to be. Is there's a ho That's somebody else's entire job, yeah. an entire master's around it, yeah. there's entire training, there's no way I could possibly be that person after doing like you know a couple of months worth of work. But if they could just all be done, that would be great, because it will save me swearing at SPSS for a number of months. Because then you never finish with stats. You could just keep going forever and do more tests. And sometimes you have to put the barrier down and say this is enough. So if that could be done, I'd be very happy. Okay, so is with the statistics in your project, um, 
is that something that you are getting support around or is that something that it's you on your own? No, 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 I have to say the support for that. I mean, as anybody in a PhD, you have to go out and find the support. You ask for it. I'm very much not scared of asking. Hmm. I, I am just, I, I will often, I think I've done to my supervisor at some point, I've actually sent an email and the title is, I need help. Uh, like, I can't be any more obvious. And they're very good. They understand. They speak Emma very fluently. <laughs> so they understand and they get back to me very quickly. Um, yet university has pointed me towards a great statistician, things like power sampling. Yeah. Um, and then the hospital has got a fantastic medical statistician mm -hmm. who I just love completely. Oh, yeah. um, I love Leon. He's just, I think because he was a previous doctor before he went into statistics, okay. so he understands exactly what I'm getting at, which yeah. may be the university statistician. Mm. It's, it's the difference between what's statistically interesting or clinically interesting. Mm. And the two may not marry, mm. but he understands that. So he has been fantastic and is very patient with me, I have to say. And, and failing that, I've learned a lot of YouTube. <laughs> I know YouTube's great. It's it's such like a repository for learning. I might have to put in the front page, you know, acknowledgements to YouTube. <laughs> oh. You say that, but I've actually had to learn how to reference certain like resources. So um, in my PhD, I used quite a lot of open source programs, mm. and so I had to learn how to reference those because like they're not yeah, that's not Mendeley, is it? Yeah, <laughs> that's not Mendeleyable. Um, okay, so um, ten being, it's all done. Mm. Zero being you haven't started. How close are you to that Christmas dream of waking up and your statistics is all done? I will always think I'm a one, but if I'm probably reality, mm. I'm probably more of a five. Okay. I'm in the middle. Okay. I've got six chapters. Yeah. I've got two kind of first drafts done and either being reviewed or being reviewed. And some that I just can't do yet because I haven't done my follow-up. Okay. Okay. So you still um, you're still waiting on some data. Yeah, I've got like a okay. one-year follow-up. So that okay. I mean that comes to completion in the spring. So I've got maybe six chapters and two that I can't do anything about yet. Okay. Two that are cooking and two that are partially cooked. Okay. And done, which I'm told is okay, hmm. but I never actually feel that it's okay. I always feel. My expectations of myself are probably higher than other people put on me, mm. which is probably the better way round, I suppose, than to think you're cushy and you're really not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. I mean, at this point, <laughs> I've this far through it, I'll pay for my last year, I've got to finish it. <laughs> so it'll happen. So it's getting done It's regardless. getting done, yeah. Okay, so Christmas list has been granted. You wake up on Christmas Day. And under your Christmas tree in a box is all of your, so you don't have your data, but you're like, um, with SPS, I'm guessing you use syntax? Probably. So syntax is... Please tell me you are actually using... So syntax is like the background code. So when you press buttons oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. SPSS, a code gets created. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you save that syntax, then... So if you have some one-year follow-up, you can write your analysis plan. And then as you get more data, then all you have to do is press play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on different versions of SPS. Some don't have that, though. I found that to my error. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you got to use the, the, like, the newer version. This does not look version. like my previous one. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so in your Christmas box is your syntax for all of your statistics. So all you have to do in whenever in the spring that your last follow-up is done is you just press the play button. So that's done. So is that your PhD finished then? Well, apart from the writing up conclusion malarkey. And I think chapter one is my intro lit review. And let's be honest, your lit review is never done until the week is due. Because if I were to finish it, something new would get published. Mm. So that's current. So. so your PhD, what model are you using to, to, to finish it? Because you keep talking about write-up, write-up. Is yeah. that papers? Is that a no. book? Is so that mine's a... a pretty traditional monologue PhD. Okay. So monologue being a publish. book. Yeah, pretty okay. much. So I don't have to publish, ah. but it's in your interest to publish mm. so that when Mr. and Mrs. Survivor sit there, they can look at it and go, well, it's already been peer reviewed and I can feel a little bit easier about it. But I don't have to publish as part of my PhD. I okay. actually have a big project yep. and I will write up chapters which encompass. So for me, some people will write up a intro chapter, a lit review chapter, a methods chapter. Okay. Whereas for me, with the exception of my intro lit review, my other five chapters are very standalone. So I've got a chapter oh, on okay. echo. I've got a chapter on blood results. Yep. I've got a chapter on a one-year follow-up. Ah. So they're different chapters. They're all contained, okay. almost like a little standalone little dissertation on their own. Flash but all on the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. I ain't no fool. <laughs> okay. So monologue and then done. Yes, lots of thousand words later, 80,000 words later, and we're done. Mm, okay. <laughs> I actually, and it was so funny because one of my PhD supervisors, when I was actually finished and I pressed the submit button on my thesis, um, because I'm not sure about you, but are your supervisors on social media? Not that I know of, no. Okay, so mine, this one is, a couple of mine are, and so you, what? <laughs> You stalk them a little bit, maybe? Um, and it was so adorable because all through my PhD, um, and I don't say this to brag, it's, it's, it's a challenge in and of itself. Um, I have too many words. Um, I'm not, I've not yet had the problem of um, staring at a blank page going, what do I put on there? Oh, no, same. I'm more the person being like, I have 50 pages and I'm only oh, yeah. supposed to have two. I can totally word vomit. Yeah. yeah. So when I hit submit, he said, he put out a message that I don't, he didn't name me. So it could have been about something with somebody else. But I like to take credit of it. He's like, oh, I've just had somebody finish, blah, blah, blah. And I'm really going to miss the word. <laughs> sure you are. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good story. Um, okay. So finish the PhD. That's going to happen in the year. So what what next? Is there anything else on your Christmas wish list when it comes to your role as a clinical researcher? Uh, funding is on everybody's wish list, is it not? I really don't want to have done the PhD for nothing. Okay. That, I mean, I, I, grant, I understand well, completely that some people do it mm. and don't have an enjoyable experience mm. and don't want to do it again. And that, that, that's fine. It's that that's what it is, and it deserves its place in recognition of what they went mm. through, but not to do it again. Fine, but I actually, I actually really like it. Even the stats. Oh, I wouldn't say <laughs> I like it. I mean, I'm okay with the stats. I, the thing with the stats is I understand it while I'm doing it, and I'll walk mm. away from it. And a half hour later, I've lost it completely. 
but no, I, I do enjoy it. I don't, I don't regret it, and I'd want to do more. Okay. So we just need time and funding okay. to do them all. Okay. So for you, the the why that led you to a PhD, that's more something you see in your clinical academic. Well, not your clinical academic, your clinical career, if if you can manage it. Yeah. Like I think everybody comes out of a PhD with more questions than they went into. Um, and even if even if you go through, I remember, you know, sort of like year two, and I had to have my lovely primary question and all my secondaries, lovely. And then as it's gone through, I was like, yeah, but what about that? Oh, it'd be interesting if I did that over a different time period, wouldn't it? So you end up with more stuff that you want to do at the end of it. Now, whether you do or not is another matter. Mm. But it's definitely snowballed. Okay. So are there uh, particular things that you've seen already that you're like, hmm, I wonder? Hmm, very exciting. <laughs> very exciting. And is that related to that patient population or is that related to the, like, I guess what I'm trying to pick at here is when you see yourself as a researcher in the future, do you see yourself as somebody who is chasing um, understanding your tools so like your your techniques behind your imaging or are you more of a person who's like oh my goodness uh if i could research something for the rest of my life it would be blah 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 patient type uh, a bit of both I'm, I'm very much on brand obviously i'm an echocardiographer so it comes as no surprise that my on brand will be uh, ultrasounding of hearts but there's so much variety in there, uh, and certainly the strain analysis um, would be one of them. So I think it's probably two-pronged. Yes, okay. I'm still interested in what happens to these septic people um, and patients with sepsis and septic shock. So maybe actually looking at a bigger cohort and actually seeing what my 12-month data looks like. Should I expand that out mm. and have a look at my 24-month data mm. or start implementing something? Can I make a, like a regression decision-making tree? And then Ooh. try implementing that. That's what would be quite sexy. Um, depends what the stats show. Um, <laughs> but on the flip side, actually, I've got this strain toolkit, mm. which is, you know, it's it's not news. Anybody who works in echocardiography will have heard of it mm. and should be dabbling and using it. Um, there is more dabbling than using, but that's okay. It takes a long time to go from bench to bedside. Mm. Um, but people are using it more, and it's a case of, okay, so we've got used to using it for this part of the heart. But actually, if I could use it on that part of the heart, I might find out something even more interesting on certain mm. patients. So it's always going to be heart failure. Okay. And it's always going to be looking at patients with echocardiography some way. Okay. It's just where that thread is. So you said something there that intrigues me. And it goes together with what you said at the beginning of our conversation. I think it's kind of just a bench to bedside. Mm. Okay, so... I don't know about you, but when I first started going down the research rabbit hole, and I'm talking like ages ago that this happened, um, I was absolutely flabbergasted. I can remember, like, I mean, it was so long ago. It wasn't heart failure. It was exercise psychology. Um, and I can remember I had to do a paper for university. And they were like, go read papers and see what you can find out about blah. Um, and I went into the library and I looked and I found like papers from like the 
60s that were like, here's the answer to all of your problems. And I'm going, um, it's uh, 1998 and we're not doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think that you being clinical, um, not only is that a benefit when it comes to asking relevant questions, what about on the other side? When you're done your, your research, do you think that you as a clinician are able then um, to speed up that translation from bench back to bedside? Oh, I think that's just so multifactorial for the particular speciality I'm in. Okay, tell us more. So I, I think, um, it's like I say, strain imaging has been around for a while. Okay. But it's, like I say, it's glacial. So, I mean, there's lots of references in okay. my thesis are definitely more than five years old. Okay. Just because that's when it was all done. Um, and actually strain, even in the septic patient population, mm. is not news itself. Okay. It's just the fact that it's never been done by a person who does strain for a living. It's always been oh. done by, you know, perhaps, you know, consultant intensivists or consultant cardiologists. Actually, it's um, it's about the person that's doing it, yeah. having this idea and moving it along. So we look at it possibly a diff different way. Okay. And while changing, like I say, making a change in things, obviously takes more than just my little study. <laughs> I mean... I'll accept my Nobel Peace Prize next year or something, but <laughs> it takes more than my little study. It's obviously a snowball effect, mm. and I'm, the PhD is just adding to that knowledge that's already existing. So I'm, I'm adding my little pinprick into it that says, this is my study that shows this. But I think what would be really nice is the what's not been done before is, like I said before, making that kind of that decision-making process. Okay. That's something that I think will trial and error, but it needs to happen on a bigger scale. The thing we could do, certainly in a smaller idea, either just in my workspace yeah. and my colleagues, or within the Echo Society, of, you know that we that we are part of the British Society of uh, Echo, is actually it's about just giving a lot more recognition and weight to these things. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, the the strain imaging. It's something that we all know about. Mm. Um, it comes up on exams for our, you know, our professional exams, and it's on a guideline. We should be using it in this type of patient, but it's not on a guideline to use on that type, that type, or that type. Okay. So some of it is about where's the barriers in uh, us using this, yep. and actually it's those barriers that could be broken down by this type of research okay. and others. Yeah. If you break down those barriers and get people acknowledging and using it. Yeah. Because, oh, yeah, no, Emma in Portsmouth did that, and yeah. I saw her at the conference, so I'll have a yeah. play um, on this particular type of patient, because I do it on that type. Yeah. Then you, you kind of, that's where your snowball from bench to bedside is probably better placed. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to, to come along and go up to nice headlines and just sort of like knock on the HQ door and go, I've done a PhD that says something. They're not going to change their guidelines for me. But if you can snowball people even just using mm -hmm. it, and mm. snowball people just thinking about it. Best case scenario, people use it, get used to it, so they're ready for when it does make a change, they already know about yeah. it and how to do it. Yeah. Smooth transition. Or you might get people asking questions themselves. Mm. That's the snowball effect. Mm. Okay. I, I, think, I think that there is definite truth to what you say there, but I also think like, 
I know for me anyway, and knowing you to the good degree that I know you, I think that we as early career researchers or even still doing our PhD, depending on how you want to define early career researcher, we often um, are like, oh, it's just my little thing. And, but I, I think we often don't see how much ripple mm. that little project is having. And that's it, it's the ripple. Hopefully mm. people in my profession see another person's done a PhD and I didn't realise that many, there's not many of us do that, is there? But yeah. actually now I'm seeing more people do it, it's an option. And people have their own ideas of why does that and 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 it yeah. and it's happened even in my own workspace. Okay. So just um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, people are doing posters for things they didn't do them before. Somebody uh -huh. has done a research module that they may or may not have done before. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a timeline next to me running where Emma doesn't have a PhD. <laughs> but you know, I'd like to hope that um, sort of like people are just putting that out there a bit. Yeah. It's it is it is an absolute ripple effect. Yeah. There's you know there's that little bit where. Whatever we're doing and or done in terms of PhD, it's been hard. Oh, yeah. It's been hard, but it's been worth it. Mm. Um, but there's also that little bit of almost imposter syndrome. Isn't little old me couldn't have possibly make a change, could we? Little, <laughs> little old Emma? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I was knocking on the door. Yeah, there, there's, there's a little bit about that. But yeah. you know what? If all I get from it is a ripple effect and somebody else becomes interested mm. in research, my job is done. Yeah. Because yeah. maybe that person who's doing that research, they're doing because Emma, you know, Emma showed me I could. Yeah. Actually, maybe theirs is the bit that makes yeah. the bigger ripple. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay being a poster girl for them as long as they go on and get their Nobel Prize. That's fine. I'll live without mine. <laughs> as long as somebody somewhere gets a Nobel Prize. I'll go in the acknowledgements, whoever it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's such a, like important thing to see and value. And it's something, pay it forward. Yeah, pay it forward. And I think, too, like there's... I think there's sometimes a lot of pressure, especially like you were saying, like that magical money tree doesn't mm. exist. And we constantly are knocking on thunderstores and having our noses smashed in at the speed of that door being shut on us. Um, and I think it does often feel very personal. And I think um, for me anyway, it definitely fuels that imposter monster mm. and makes mm. them bigger. But I think, like, I think that's the importance of, of having, even if it is a, a young research group, um, having other people, your heroes around you and heroes that are willing to not just show you the wave tops, but actually their low points as well. Oh, God, yes. Oh, my God, I could talk forever about this. Give me another podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> like, don't volunteer. There's no points away you learn, people. Okay, so okay, so we've talked about your, your wish list. Now I'm going to um, have you put a figurative Santa Claus hat on, and now you're giving a research gift out to the world. What would you, as Santa Claus, give other, hence the podcast, <laughs> young or even established, like other clinical researchers or clinicians who are like, hmm, I've heard about this crazy Emma girl. 
Um, she does this weird research thing. I'd like to get in. So what would be your gift as Santa Claus to everybody who wants to do research out there? Oh, God, the, the, the gift of stubbornness. <laughs> For sure. You've got to just... It's not about... I mean, it is about a certain level of intelligence, otherwise you wouldn't get onto it, but yeah. it's the stubbornness to commit and do it and find new ways of working. And a lot of that is just nothing to do with how well you can write a paragraph, mm. although that is part of it. It's um, so definitely um, to have a little bit of tenacity, but I think the gift of definitely don't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. There's always a ways around it. I got told no on a lot of things. Mm. There's a lot of things I wasn't eligible for. There's lots of research grants and fellowships that I either couldn't apply for because... I'm not all because I'm not a doctor mm. and I'm not part of a particular staff group or I'm not a career researcher. So mm. where do I go then as a mm. healthcare scientist? Um, and then some of it was actually no, because my job is so niche mm. that I can't be released from my job either because nobody else does stress echoes but me. So that's a problem. So I couldn't be released from it. So it's about having that creativity. And again, it's probably where the stubbornness comes into it, but just having the that idea of I am going to find a way to do it enough. If I could just give everybody just a some hit of moxie, um, you just to not let go of that idea and mm. not to give it away to other people. Mm. So there was definitely it would have been easier to somebody wanted to take my idea and run with it, and I just did the data collection. Mm. I could have done that, mm. um, and there were people that were happy to do that for me. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, you can always find somebody to own stuff for I you. You always want to be PI. Um, but actually, that was mine. And to, mm. again, that stubbornness a little bit. You're not, you're not begging people mm. to allow your career to happen. You're going to make it and carve it out. And you're going to be creative. And you're going to find a way for it to work. And it will. Mm. If I can just get everybody that belief that it's all about making it happen and it will happen. You know, build it and they will come. It's a little bit like that, but for research. If everybody just had that little bit of belief, mixed in with imposter syndrome, of course, because we're only human. <laughs> but I, th I think there would be a lot more clinician-led research done because we're used to it being doctors that do research. Mm. But we're the ones on the shop floor asking those questions. and We should own the research. We should be at that table when research is being served because we've got importance to it. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more with you. I have, like, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. It's because I think people like you, people like some of the other guests, um, we are those unicorns, to mm. use your word, um, especially in the, the non doctors of us, the non medics. Um, we are those unicorns, and sometimes because of the amount of tenacity and stubbornness and energy that we have to pour into making it happen, we don't have the time to be like, ah, oh, guys, um, oh, I'm doing this thing. And so I think I think that wraps it up perfectly because I think for me, having you on here. Uh, having this go out into the world, you giving your gift of moxie. I love that <laughs> word. It's such an old like that next to the word. I love it. And like because I'm about to watch it again because it's Christmas, the movie, the holiday. 
Gumption. Gumption. Yes. It's an old-fashioned word, but we need we need more clinicians because I don't know a single clinician who doesn't have a. <clears throat> why doesn't somebody do something about yeah, yeah, yeah. this? Why? But they don't have that that moxie, that gumption, that role model. Um, so, unfortunately, what you get is like, something that I got is like, well, we don't really do that. Though, mm. do we? What we do, I think I suggest you stand aside and let's watch. We do it. Um, <laughs> oh, the, the gumption came out. Like, yeah, right moxie with a capital M, right there. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you got to. There's always a way to do it, and I've found very creative ways to get funding. Um, and to get time, time management, mm. and you know, been writing. Th- my son's been in a bath for an hour while I've been there on my laptop. You know, sat on the bathroom floor doing something, trying to figure out Mendeley or something. But we, we can do it. We can, mm. and we should. Mm. We've just got to believe that we can and mm. see role models. Somebody else has done it. That's a possibility for me, and then make it happen. Mm. Love it. Right. Thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule. I only came to the bottom tonic. It was lovely. (laughs) (laughs) It's water. (laughs) Uh, It's not quite. Is it four o'clock or five o'clock? It is somewhere. It (laughs) is somewhere, whatever. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for coming, for being willing to do this special Christmas edition live instead of virtual. Um, I've loved hearing more about your journey. Like, we do know each other professionally, and I've heard bits and pieces of your journey, but actually having a dedicated time to have this conversation, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, That's it for today. So make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe. And as usual in these podcasts, in the description, both on the audio podcast as well as the YouTube version of the same podcast, we will put up how you can find Emma, a few bits and pieces uh, about her, a link that you can follow to read more about her PhD, and some other bits and pieces. So go in there, find out oh, her sounds and her book that is a secret because she can't remember the title. Um, that'll all go in there. So make sure that you click into the description and... Um, get those information and if you have any specific questions for Emma you can leave them in with or myself you can leave it in the comments and we'll make sure they get to the right person thank you so much for tuning in and keep asking why don't go away up next we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin I know Emma we work together at the hospital um, and we often talk quite a bit about when I was still doing my PhD the PhD journey Um, So I knew that she'd be really good fun to have on this special Christmas edition. So my top three takeaways from today and Emma sharing her journey with all of us. Um, I think for me, number one is something that I've been saying at some of the end of her podcast is asking why. Um, And she's not the first guest who's kind of talked about that through the last several episodes in this podcast is I think especially regardless of your clinical background, um, so many people have posed that question and it it seems like a simple thing um, to wonder why we do this versus this. And in Emma's case, you know, they use strain in cancer patients, but they don't use strain in cardiology patients. And so she asked why, why not? And that kind of 
spun off into the research project that she developed and her PhD studies. And so I think it's really important, regardless of what stage you're at, uh, to be curious, to, to wonder, to ask, to, you know, take some study leave, to look into things, to get, you know, your lovely clinical librarians possibly at your hospital to help you investigate and, and, and look into whether or not anybody else has asked that question and if we know the answer to that, that question. So that's, that's point number one is, is um, asking why. The second takeaway that I had from her, which is kind of related, but a little bit different, is that desire to expand knowledge. So I think Emma's PhD, and she was talking about it a little bit, it's this, it's, it's not a new technique, this thing she kept referring to as strain in echocardiography, so ultrasounds of the heart. It's not a new technique, but it hasn't been applied to other conditions, other situations. Um, and so by asking why, she's now through her studies hoping to be able to expand that knowledge to say, okay, well, we know it works really well in this population. How did it work in that population? And does that mean that we should possibly change policies and guidelines around how we measure heart function? So um, I think that curiosity driving um, uh, that advancement of medical knowledge and, and like she said in the podcast that that isn't restricted to just doctors and I think that was really important that that license as a clinician regardless of the type of professional you are to get involved with the research so that you can help expand our current knowledge I thought that was a really important message to to take on board personally um, and then my third one, which I loved, because um, knowing Emma the way I do, she has bags of moxie, and it's something that I really admire in her, is that, that, that stubbornness, that tenacity, that, that moxie, um, that I think all researchers need. It's, it's not an easy thing, research. It's not easy to expand knowledge. It's not easy to question the status quo. And I think we all need to get better at encouraging and fostering that, that stubbornness, that moxie in each other to, to not take no for an answer, but maybe take it as a way to, okay, maybe that wasn't the best approach or it wasn't the best time and, and keep trying, keep working at things. And it's something that I'm but you know, it's interesting that she said that because today I need I need to get some own moxie about something that I need to work about as well. So um, it's it's a continual thing to, to remember that moxie is an important thing to to remember that we need as researchers. And I think hearing that from me today meant the world. It was perfect timing. So I hope that having her here, having this little Christmas edition has inspired you, has encouraged you to think about things differently, to get a little bit more moxie, to put that imposter monster back in its box for even five minutes, as well as for those of you who may not have started your research journey, to encourage you just to be curious and just ask why. Thank you so much for joming me today, and jo Emma joining me, I'm very grateful for her coming. 
um, and doing this live video record instead of relying on technology. It's been great doing it in person and I hope you all enjoyed it. Let me know what you think in the comments. Should I do more of this in person um, interviewing or should I just keep up with the remote? Do a mixture of both. What do you think? Let me know um, in the comments either in YouTube or on uh, the post on social media. And yeah, that is it for our Christmas special. Uh, remember to like, comment and subscribe either on YouTube or on your podcasting platform of choice as that's really going to help encourage this. This is something that I'm just doing for fun. Um, but I really am passionate about sharing our research journey as non-medics um, with the rest of the world and, and sharing what that looks like and feels like in the hope of inspiring other people to to to, to dabble in research. Um, so anything you can do to help share that message, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for everybody who has subscribed. That's been the best Christmas present for me. And I will, um, the regularly scheduled post will still go out. Um, this won't reset the three week clock. This is a bonus episode. So the next episode should be coming out in another two-ish week. Well, no, about a week by the time this is, this is published. So, um, yeah, stay tuned and thank you so much for listening and downloading to all of my episodes so far. And I look forward to a new exciting year next year with more great guests to come. Mm -hmm.